This is Derek Taylor of the Controversies in Church History podcast. I'd like to begin this episode with a special message uh, for my listeners. I am dedicating this episode uh, to the memory of my mother, Holly Watts Taylor, who passed away uh, and left this earth on July 7th, uh, 2023. And uh, hope you will uh, say a prayer for her, my listeners. Uh, my mother um, was not Roman Catholic, but passed away suddenly. And so if you would do that, I'd very much appreciate it. Um, thank you, and, and God bless. With that, I welcome you to the latest episode of Controversies in Church History. Um, you can find us on the web, um, churchcontroversies.com, the website. You can find us on social media, Facebook, uh, Twitter. You can also find uh, the podcast on Patreon, uh, if you'd like to become a patron, uh, and um, as well as on YouTube as well. But uh, otherwise, all the, uh, all the podcasts are free and uh, open to the public. Uh, I do hold back a few episodes until uh, for my patrons and for some other things, they get some bonus content, but that is the nature of the podcast. In this episode, we have a very special episode for you, kind of personal to me in several ways. The Rise and Fall of the Integrated Humanities Program. And if you don't know what that refers to, uh, if you've never heard of it, some of you are listeners, at least one patron I know definitely knows what this is. The, um, the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program was a special integrated humanities program that was created in the University of Kansas in the 1970s um, by a few professors, um, John Sr., Dennis Quinn, and Franklin Nellick, which, uh, as we're going to get to uh, in this episode, was, was shut down. And one of the things that, you know, what is that, what is a, what does all this academic stuff have to do with Catholicism? It was shut down partly because you had kids converting to Catholicism who went through this program. A few of them in 1976 and 77 actually left their homes entirely and, and, and entered a monastery, and this set off a sort of demise of this program. And it's a tale that I actually heard a lot, and this is why this is personal to me, this particular episode, because if you don't know, I got my... Uh, degree in history, my my doctoral degree at the University of Kansas. I spent most of my my days uh, in terms of worship and everything there at the uh, St. Lawrence St. Lawrence Catholic Campus Center, where at the time there were a lot of people who had gone through the program, whose kids went to KU, who told me about it. Uh, so I knew what it was. I actually knew more later in my credit. When I first got there, I didn't know anything about it, and. Um, to say the least, that's a lasting memory uh, in the, for Catholics around that area, and we're familiar with this, but it's a really special episode, um, both in terms of Catholic history, but also the history of well, education, but also broadly speaking, um, well, uh, liberalism, the liberal tradition. So, and so that's why I'm going to kind of focus on these two things. You know, how much this episode will focus on Catholicism, how much... The question is, you have in your mind, how much was anti-Catholicism behind this, the university's squashing of this program, and then uh, how much was it a matter of other things, and those are the two things I'll try to emphasize here. So just a little background, however. Now, 
the humanities program they created was kind of part of a wider movement in higher education. You kind of have to know this. I think knowing the Cold War setting is kind of important for what's happening in the 1960s and 70s in the United States on campuses. Because one of the things that, that changes the university system in the United States after World War II is the Cold War. You have ballooning enrollments due to the GI Bill with people coming back from World War II. But you also have universities getting bigger because you have the United States government pumping federal funding into uh, universities. Why? Mostly for R&D purposes. Again, this is the Cold War. They're concerned about technology, but they're, they're pumping a lot of money in. So these, um, these, you know, these universities become you know, big, booming businesses, essentially. And one of the things to note about this is that a lot of this is, uh, of course, as I'm sure you're aware, um, influenced by, by the po you know, political and moral philosophy of liberalism. And in particular, I'll talk about this more in a second, in the post-war era, there's concern, of course, in the Cold War about, you know, totalitarianism. And this will actually filter into the creation of things like Western Civ programs and humanities programs. And this is something I need to actually step back for a moment. Because the first um, Western Civ program, something kind of like, it's not totally like, but kind of like the, the IHP, were created after World War I. And this was partly a response to a couple of things. One was the, the transformation of the modern university. If you don't know what this is, you probably know that in universities in the Middle Ages, right, they taught things like theology and law. They taught the liberal arts curriculum. If you wanted to go into specialization, you would go on later and become a lawyer or a theologian or a, or a doctor. Um, that system was scrapped in the United States in the late 19th century. They took on a German model where all of a sudden now you have the old classical curriculum gone and replaced by a lot of different specialized disciplines. And people criticized this from the beginning, that it was too specialized. The things that were taught there didn't add up into a sort of larger whole, didn't make sense. And this led to the, the creation of a quote-unquote general curriculum as an antidote. Um, and you get these generalized courses like Western Civ being created or things like it. The other thing that feeds into it uh, is uh, concern about civilization. This is directly tied to the World Wars, particularly World War I. Um, the first Western Civ course ever taught was taught at the University of Columbia or Columbia University in 1919. And it was a direct uh, product of, the univer of university col uh, collaboration um, with the Army and the United States Army. Uh, if you're wondering how that is, why that is, because during the war, there were worries that enrollment would collapse because of conscription, so universities actually hosted army units, conscripts on campus, where they took compulsory courses, uh, a compulsory course called War Issues, which stressed you know, the civilizational stakes of World War I, that we have to defeat the Germans because they're the Hun, and we represent civilization and Western civilization. And what happened basically is that this led to, at Columbia after the war, the first citizenship classes, kind of an imitation of that, the creation of what they call compulsory contemporary civilization classes. Uh, the goal of which, and this is an actual description quote, was to make a citizen who shall be safe for democracy, unquote. And thus began the oldest of these Western Civ programs. And, um, you have uh, this spreading to other universities, most famously the Great Books Program at the University of Chicago. Um, this is associated with Mortimer Adler, who's very famous. He's an influence on the IHP is why I'm mentioning all this. And um, 
whereas the Columbia version of this great books program had emphasized history as the sort of integrating discipline of this program, the Chicago program was kind of different because it emphasized philosophy. And the difference is a big one because the Columbia model uh, emphasized that contemporary Western civilization was, was the sort of, uh, you know, final outcome of historical development. In other words, it was the sort of, you know, end point to which we were all moving, I guess. Whereas the Chicago version of this uh, emphasized discussion of primary text versus lectures and textbooks as it had at Columbia, and was much more thematic, much more philosophically based, tended to emphasize a little more the permanent and enduring things. Now, what happens is this idea doesn't actually uh, hold on very long. Because um, what happens is, I mean, maybe this idea of a general curricula in general is a response to all this fragmentation of, of, the, uh, of the academic um, discipline. Um, partly for a couple of different reasons. One is that, again, emphasis on the Cold War in the post-war era gives emphasis on research specialization, um, more cachet, and so it drowns out this idea that you need a general education. Also, something else happens that following the war, uh, America was the dominant power in the world now, and a lot of people got the idea that you didn't need uh, as much contact with European civilization, that Europe was kind of dead and we were the sort of going thing. And it's important to note here, uh, this sensibility, because it gets into this, I think, that um, I can't stress this enough, you may think of World War II, for example, as being, you know, getting, stopping Hitler and stopping him taking over the world. That's not how the leaders of the United States thought of it. Um, they thought of it as a war for liberal democracy against fascism, um, against things like racism because of the Holocaust. And what's going to happen, and I'm mentioning all this, is that liberals after World War II, Cold War liberals, begin to see the entire world this way. Um, the reason why fascism rose is because it's you know, monolithic, culturally speaking, and it's aggressive, right, and nationalistic. And anything that seems anything like that, they tend to, it seems like fascism to them. And in fact, a lot of the Western Civ programs that get founded in the, uh, the uh, post-war era, in particular, the Humanities and Western Civilization program at the University of Kansas, they already had one um, prior to the creation of the IHP, tend to be founded on this idea, which is essentially, by the way, a pluralistic or multicultural idea of civilization. Um, multiculturalism, if you don't know, I've, I mentioned this on other podcasts, as an idea didn't even exist really until the post-war era. The idea that you, you know, there's no one right culture, there's no one right civilization, you have to tolerate multiple different points of view. This is very much a post-war idea tied to, to the two world wars and the Cold War. What does that have to do with the University of Kansas and all this stuff? Okay, so a couple of things to note about the University of Kansas, if you don't know. Uh, it's in the city of Lawrence, Kansas, in, uh, uh, in that state. And Lawrence was founded by settlers from Massachusetts, abolitionists, Puritans in other words. If you don't know anything about the abolitionists, they were mostly New England, a lot of them were New England Puritans, and they were almost all very, very, very anti-Catholic. <laughs> And this lasted for a long time, I think, in Lawrence. I can't say this for a fact, but when I was going through, um, when I, during my time there, uh, people for, uh, in and around the, uh, the campus center there told me that, um, I guess the, at one point, uh, the, the, the area around the campus center, the sort of neighborhood there in Lawrence, and once upon a time had legal covenants in place that were supposed to keep out blacks, Jews, and Catholics. 
I've never confirmed that, by the way, but that's what I have heard. And uh, I do know there was a lot of opposition. Uh, I think the actual center as it exists only goes back to 1987. But there was a lot of opposition to its building in that area. There were complaints that would bring traffic through there and stuff like this. From what I recall, some people thought this was an excuse. They just didn't want the Catholic center there. And I can actually tell you, I used to go with a group of people from the center when I was there. At Christmas time, we'd go caroling through that neighborhood. And every once in a while, most people come out and sing, and they thought it was nice. But every once in a while, you get people who like come out and say, "Get it, please move, move on." Or some people just sort of stare at you icily from their window. I don't know. It, it, it seems very plausible to me. It still exists there. Is my point. So that's something in the background to keep uh, in mind. But the immediate uh, thing that gets us to University of Kansas is that in 1966, the university, I think, fairly forward-thinking. Um, was worried about the growth of the, of the, uh, of the college. Uh, there were so many students. There were 23,000 students, by the way, by, by 1966. And so it led them to be concerned about students being isolated uh, in this big university, which, by the way, to give you an idea of how, um, how much the university has bloated in, in terms of administration since then, in 1996, um, there were 23,000 students at KU. The whole time I was there, I don't think it's moved. I think it was only 27,000 students. So it's hardly increased uh, in over half a century. But to remedy this, this problem, the college decided they would experiment with creating what they called colleges within a college. Smaller units within some of the, the larger units, like the, particularly the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, to give students a sense of community, which by the way is a good idea. Uh, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Florida University of Florida has well over 40,000 students. And I think I may have taken one or two classes in my entire time there where I, had this, I saw the same people in four years. So it's a good idea. And uh, a year after this, they founded the first one in 66. They decided to add four more, including one called Pearson College, um, the dean of which was a man named Dennis Quinn. And Dennis Quinn is one of the main actors here. He's one of the founders, along with John Sr. and Franklin Nellick, um, of another sub-college within the Pearson College, the Integrated Humanities Program, which began in 1970-1971 with 20 students. Now, these three men are, are kind of at the heart of this, so just a couple of words about them. I won't do, dive too much into their background here. I want to focus on larger issues. But uh, Quinn was, as I mentioned before, the dean of, of Pearson College, and he is kind of the front man for the... Um, the Integrated Humanities Program. He's the one who sort of speaks to um, the, um, the administration when they begin to have problems. Like all the profs involved here, he's a practicing Roman Catholic. And quite frankly, and I mean this in an admiring way, I think Dennis Quinn, I, I never got to know the guy. I knew he was, he was still alive. He, dies only, he died only in 2011, uh, which is the year I got my, my doctoral degree, actually. But I think I saw him once around the Catholic Center Apparently, he was going through dementia toward the end of his life, so I didn't see him a lot. I only arrived in Lawrence in 2004. But from reading up on him and his role in all this, he, quite frankly, Gwyn seems like an ass kicker to me. Um, because when the, when the administration starts, or when people start hurling, I think, are really ridiculous accusations at the program, he really fights back hard. He's really feisty. So he's sort of the public face of the program this way. Franklin Nellick, um, another of these uh, profs, by the way, these are all English profs. I believe John Sr., um, we'll get to in a second, was also in the classics department, had a tenure, uh, 
had an appointment there as well. But they were all English professors, basically, into literature. Uh, Franklin Nellick might be, from what I can tell, the least, quote-unquote, pious among the three, if you like. Also still a Catholic. But um, ex-Navy man, divorced, which is kind of risque back in the 1960s. But um, also an English prof. Also, they all basically had a sort of medieval orientation to their to their um, to their teaching and their and their and their careers. And he was the second of the three. Then finally, John Senior, who might be the most influential in intellectual terms among the three. Um, people that I know went through the program. People who knew of him, they tend to cite. He wrote a couple of books that are. Still, people like to read The Death of Christian Culture and The Restoration of Christian Culture, those two main ones. And he had the most, I think, interesting journey uh, to, to this program. He was, he'd been an atheist and a communist before converting to Catholicism in the 1950s. And in particular, he kind of, like the other two professors mentioned here, he, he was dissatisfied with the fragmentation of, of, of teaching and, and thought in the modern academy. Uh, it's kind of emblematic of the group in that way. And he, uh, he taught at several high-profile institutions. Uh, again, if you actually care about these things, he, you know, he, uh, I think he got his uh, degree at Columbia. Again, that one of those earlier, you know, Western, not, I don't think he specialized in that, but he got his degree from Columbia. I think, yeah, Quinn and Nellick got their, got their degrees from Wisconsin, which is a fine state university, by the way, especially for history, but or used to be anyway. Um, but... Um, but seniors taught at some fairly high-profile schools on the, in the East Coast, last of which was Cornell University. But he began to tire of the secular atmosphere in these places, so he moved to the well to the West first. He actually moves first to the University of Wyoming, and then from there arrives at KU in the late 1960s, where he meets these two other profs. And they create this program, which is kind of need to explain the, the nature of it when I say integrated humanities programs. You see how I've been emphasizing here the sort of, and people still complain about this, oddly enough, uh, even in the contemporary university system, but the just lack of coherence of the educational program that's taught. The sciences and the humanities don't seem to add up to, add up to anything. There's no whole, there's no larger picture that sort of emerges through all this. And the purpose of this program was to integrate those things, um, particularly um, through what they, what sometimes referred to as the philosoph uh, philosophia perennis, or the perennial philosophy, which one way to describe this, there are several ways of describing this idea, is the idea that there is natural human wisdom that unites the various strands of Western civilization, from the ancient pagan world of Greek and Rome up through the Christian world of Middle Ages, and really up to about the Renaissance, as far as they went in terms of chronology. Um, there are other versions of this, by the way. Um, famously, C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man you know, called this sort of wisdom that's shared by by all cultures the Tao, and you can you can extend this to you know places like ancient China and stuff like this if you want. Um, uh, Aldous Huxley was famously a proponent of this, who's definitely not a, a Catholic Christian, so it's not necessarily a Christian thing. Um, they teach what is essential. I want to say it's a Christian version of it. They themselves um, um, thought that the highest the highest, I guess, expression of this was the Christian Middle Ages. They're pretty open about that. Um, but to give you some, um, uh, some explanation and put this in their own words on what, the, what they were, um, what they're getting at with this program. As I said before, they're interested in countering all of this fragmentation, but also all of the relativism of the modern academy. So let me, let me read, this is an excerpt from a, uh, 
a uh, an essay um, by John Senior called The Perennial Heresy. This is uh, John Senior, quote, with due respect to its failures, for it seems to be failing now, the triumph of 3,000 years of Western civilization has been, from the point of view of ideas, the philosophy vaguely called the perennial philosophy, because it has survived so many seasons. It may be summed up in a sentence, the real is really real, or in a word, is. The terse scholastic formula uh, defines it, demonstrationis principium quod quid est, the beginning of proof is that which is, or in another, veritas sequitur esse redum, truth falls upon the existence of things. According to this view, um, according to this view, the principle of all things is to be. Yeah, he goes on to say, um, um, is the normal mind's first reaction to the world to know that it exists before he reflects, that is, that is, bends back his attention to his own mental and sensory processes, a man first simply looks, smells, tastes, touches, and affirms existence. Not cogito ergo sum, but aliquid est, intelligo ergo sum et ergo cogito. Something exists, and I know it, and therefore I know that I exist and think. Unquote. So it's a, it's a, it's a, um, an emphasis on the world itself as an integral whole, and that you can know it. Those are kind of the big takeaways I took from this. Uh, and there are other expressions of this in, in that program and things that uh, Senior and Quinn and others have written about. Um, and they meant to sort of remedy this fragmentation by, by viewing the world this way. And their, um, their program was kind of based around this. Literally, the way they taught was very different than you'd get in a normal college, any college class or program. It was essentially um, a holistic, I would call it a holistic sort of pedagogy. I'll explain this in a second. Uh, one thing to note about the program, by the way, it was intended for freshmen and sophomores, people who were new to the university. And um, it was literally aimed, this is the, I don't have the Latin in front, front of me, but it was aimed at producing, you know, wonder about the world. Uh, I can't remember the Latin off the top of my head, I don't have it in front of me, but the motto of the program was, let them be born in wonder. And so they began with a sort of, you know, quite frankly, pre-modern style of learning. Um, it stressed oral learning. Uh, literally, what the main thing you would do in the course, you would go into listen to the lectures, which really weren't lectures. They were basically a, a platonic dialogue among the three professors, Quinn, Senior, and, and Nellick. Uh, I wish there was no note-taking. You were not allowed to take notes. Uh, you were to learn orally by listening to them. Um, they, um, uh, you could optionally, you could take Latin in this program as well. They didn't teach Latin with, you know, Wheelock's textbook. That's the way I learned classical Latin when I was in college. They taught it orally. They, um, they also had, I don't know if these were required or not, they had some things that weren't required in this program, but they had weekly small groups where you would memorize poetry. Uh, and yet each larger class, before they started doing the platonic dialogue, would start with students reciting poetry or song. Uh, in addition to things like, I think they were optional weekly rhetoric classes. And the idea is you, you integrate thing, things that you learn orally by learning to speak them, by learning to memorize them, by you know, training your mind this way rather than the way they normally do it in, in school. Uh, and it's also integrated, besides trying to integrate the disciplines this way, it also tried to integrate soul and body. Um, they didn't have any sort of you know, uh, gymnastic activities in this program, but they went on stargazing trips you know, to go see the stars outside of Lawrence. Uh, formal dances were held. People would go dancing, you know, men and women. Uh, fairs were put on uh, at places outside, you know, people's homes outside the uh, outside of town. 
people would have games and stuff like this and all these other sorts of things. And all this was centered around the uh, idea of the great books, right? Uh, which, again, a difference here between this and, say, the program. That I, I, by the way, I, I didn't make this clear. I taught in the Humanities and Western Civilization program when I was at KU. So um, that program always basically taught bits and pieces of books. You get bits and pieces of the Bible, bits and pieces of this or that. Uh, their program, you read only whole texts, which were also discussed in smaller groups uh, outside the lectures. Uh, and there were also, of course, this will come back to this, there were optional trips to Europe, which students also went on. So you have this really, um, again, and this is the, the, the key word, integrated program here. And they would read all sides. So they didn't read too many things that were like science and math. They didn't read a couple of things, a few things. But again, the whole idea was to integrate knowledge this way in a holistic way. And um, they fulfilled what was really the rationale for these colleges within a college. They were supposed to promote community, right, among the students, intellectual community. Uh, and they did. I mean, the, to this day, I still, I, I knew people back in Lawrence who, like, their parents met in the program and got married because of it. I knew people who, um, um, you know, and this is sometimes people who just, again, the first time you meet, um, you meet people um, who went to the program, they, it's, it can almost, the, the level of closeness of the people who went through, it's kind of amazing. Uh, for a lot of these students, it was a life-changing experience. <clears throat> and um, and this, this, this went along with, by the way, lots of criticism of the modern university. If, uh, I'm trying to set this up here as why people didn't like this. This is one of the reasons. <laughs> the, um, the profs are very open that they had lots of criticisms about uh, not just the modern university, but the modern world. They thought, for example, um, that uh, the way the humanities were taught was basically, well, destructive. It destroys the integrity of, 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 uh, of learning. This is a, a quotation from Dennis Quinn. I'll read here, quote, the humanities have sold their heritage for a mess of methodology. The humanities have been professionalized and scientized to the point where the ordinary undergraduate with a budding love for poetry or history or art or philosophy finds his affection return in the form of footnotes, research projects, bibliographies, and scholarly jargon, all the poisonous paraphernalia that murders to dissect, unquote. Kind of a great, great quotation there. And uh, again, they're, they're reacting to the same thing a lot of other people have seen in the academy. Uh, with these ideas, and they actually have a list of things when they put together the program, and they were applying for they applied for an NEH grant to um, to fund it initially. Uh, it's worth reading some of the things that they the criticisms they have uh, about this, and um, this is some of the criticisms. I'll read them here because they're worth uh, mentioning. This is the three profs their their proposal here. <clears throat> Quote: One, many professors, especially as they have more experience and prestige are not interested in teaching undergraduates. Two, the instruction of large numbers of freshmen and sophomores by graduate students is undesirable and unproductive. Three, departments tend to give priority to their graduate programs first, their majors second, and their underclass courses third. Four, departmental, uh, departmentalization itself encourages narrow specialization within the discipline making profs, professors, reluctant to deal with any question or material that is not strictly within their often narrow range of expertise. Five, the historicism and pluralism which dominate humanistic study make it difficult to consider, to, to consider values which are cogent to student concerns. 
Six, typical research activities naturally lead young professors away from undergraduate teaching. Seven, the vast number and variety of courses taught by departments encourage fragmentation, which tendency is further aggravated by the total lack of coordination of course offerings among departments, unquote. I can tell you that every single complaint on this list is absolutely valid and still a, a, still a major problem in the university today. There are other things as well, of course, but these things have never really been addressed by anything in the academy. My point is, I think these professors actually did address it. I think they had a good idea, a great, I think it was better than an idea, it was a great experience. And it showed, um, just to give you an idea of what they're, what they're responding to, what their answer is. And, um, and their answer, by the way, they're, they're, they're pretty explicit about this. They have a, a brochure. I won't read it for you here. You can find this, I think, somewhere floating around the Internet, in which they advertise for the program. It's this magnificent description of the program. But basically it says they're looking for ancient and medieval wisdom as an antidote to the modern world in some respects which you can kind of tell why people in a modern university wouldn't like that very much. But, you know, who did like this a lot were students. Um, it was a huge success in terms of enrollment. By the third year of the program, uh, the number of students enrolled was 346. Uh, I think 180-something, I think 186 actually enrolled just that year alone. Uh, the student, the, whatever else you can say about the program, it was always wildly popular with the vast majority of students. But also, as later, later when you get into the, the conflicts over this, and Quinn and the other professors gather testimonials from other people, parents, visiting professors, even some members of the admin, admin administration were actually enthusiastic about its success. Uh, and the IHP always had some defenders, both in and outside the university. So it creates this magnificent experience. And I'll get to its legacy in a moment. So you had this wonderful thing. So why would the university want to shut it down? There are a couple of reasons. And uh, opposition to the program emerged very quickly. Um, there, uh, the, again, this was, I should emphasize here, this was supposed to be a, a, an experimental program. It was not necessarily guaranteed to, you know, guaranteed to be exist in perpetuity. So they knew that when they signed up. <clears throat> but... Very early on, early, late 1971, 1972, you begin to have the first committees formed to quote-unquote evaluate the program. I won't go through all these names. I'll mention two of them because there's a bunch of them involved in all this, and they make your eyes glaze over when you read about it. Um, there was an overarching committee called the Educational Policies and Procedures Committee, which had a subcommittee, <clears throat> which is the Committee for an Evaluation of Advising and Instruction, which was the the CEAI, which is the, the one that carries out the first evaluation of the program, and issues a report, or maybe a series of them, in 1972, all of which are really, really negative about the IHP. And this represents uh, the first attempt by the university to exercise control, <clears throat> both of this program, but also of the college, the whole idea of the college within a college, which we'll come back to in a second. And... Um, you begin to already have people who clearly want to get rid of the program. And Robert Carlson wrote a book about this in the 1990s, said that he thinks the opponents of the program are mostly faculty and lower-level administration at KU, that's a quotation. And this sounds about right. Um, uh, you know, lower-level admin, people who are faculty, uh, and I can mention some of the people I, I actually knew 
it's a long time ago, but I actually know one of the people who was on the on that committee, the CAI, uh, who wanted to have major changes made to the program, <clears throat> because his name was James Wolfel. Who is James Wolfel? You, you you ask. James Wolfel was the head of the Humanities and Western Civilization Department at KU when I taught in it. And uh, just to give you an idea where a lot of this criticism is coming from, James Wolfel, uh, I believe, is a Unitarian minister, liberal Protestant minister of some sort. Other major critic, by the way, was the head of the Humanities and the Western Civilization uh, uh, program at the time, the guy who founded it, a guy named James Seaver, who's kind of an impressive guy in some ways, but as you're going to see, he's kind of a liberal, I won't use the term, but he, he really didn't like the program, didn't like the IHP. And I actually had a chance to look at some of the internal documents by these committees. You can actually go up to if you live in Lawrence or anywhere near there, you can go up to the Spencer Research Library. They have all these documents. And, uh, yeah, they're very negative <laughs> about the program. Um, they basically had a bunch of, of meeting, uh, like, like 14 faculty members initially in this committee. And about three-quarters of the, 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 the people there <clears throat> wanted to either alter. Actually, all, basically everyone wanted to either alter the program or scrap it altogether. So early on, there's obstruction. What kind of obstruction? <clears throat> well, what kind of complaints? Well, first of all, there are complaints that are kind of bureaucratic in nature. Uh, complaints that it wasn't, the program wasn't sufficiently integrated with the rest of the, rest of the university. In other words, they seem to be off doing their own thing, and they didn't like that. Um, they complained. Uh, people in the classics department definitely complained about the way tat of Latin was taught there, partly because Senior was a member of the classics faculty. And initially, those, those Latin courses counted towards your degree if you were a classics major, but they you're going to say, why didn't they like about this? Well, the objection was um, most Latin programs don't accept the oral teaching method. And there were concerned students if they wanted to go to graduate school, couldn't get to graduate school, or couldn't be hired as teachers, <coughs> Latin teachers or something. Um, these Latin courses, of course, weren't required <laughs> in the IHP program. Um, and there were lots of complaints, lots of complaints about the quote-unquote isolation of the program. The idea that, um, and this gets into a lot of this stuff, Pearson students, not the, not the actual, I guess, I guess they, I don't know if they ever pinned on <coughs> Quinn or, or Senior or any of those guys, but they get lots of complaints about Pearson students, I guess the faculty too, making disparaging remarks about other departments uh, in the university and the university at large. Which, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you created these programs because you, you, normal departments and normal university wasn't providing the kind of experience you want to your students, which do you think was going to happen? Um, but there's also something else behind this, and this is something you keep in mind to think about this, is that um, a, a university is a big bureaucracy in which different parts of the bureaucracy compete for resources, funding, personnel and one of the complaints about the the uh one of the things that seemed to uh, uh, irk people about the program was that it took students away from other departments for example in 1972 the english department uh lost a number of gtas and about 346 students their enrollment dropped by 346 students you'll recall that by 1972 that's the exact same uh, almost the same number of students that was in the ihp program something that probably played into the criticisms of these people. They didn't like the fact their program was popular and theirs wasn't, and was, you know, quote-unquote, stealing students from them. But, of course, there was more to it than this. Um, there was an ideology at play here. 
in terms of opposition. And just give you an idea that one of the major complaints about the program was that it was, of all these committees, was that the IHP was dogmatic, that it only taught one point of view about the world, that it did not allow a diversity of views in its teaching. Um, they accused them of advocacy teaching, quote unquote. Excuse me. Uh, because they, you know, they taught the perspective they believed was true. In other words, um, you know, well, um, let me get more further. They, they particularly, numerous members of that CAI committee complained that treated Western civilization as the best civilization, that they insisted on that people could know the truth in a singular sense of the term. Remember, um, and uh, this is basically, these are sort of, you know, multiculturalist liberals is what we're talking about here. We can't, they, don't, they believe you can, they literally say this. They actually, one of the reports complained that, that Western civilization was not this unitary thing and you couldn't describe it as this unitary entity like these people do in this program. Uh, and these documents, they're fascinating to look at because they routinely emphasize that in the IHP, students learn that there's only one truth. One of these documents says that these students are convinced there is only one truth, in all caps, T-R-U-A-T-H, in all caps. Uh, another document, this is a complaint by James Seaver, um, that, there, that both the content of the program but also its in methodology of teaching, partly because a lot of students took all their courses with, with the three professors. They thought they were being you know, brainwashed by them or something. They use that term, by the way. I'm not making it up. Not the internal documents, I should say. Let me come close to it. Um, that this is opposed to the idea of an open university. Open university in all caps. <clears throat> I often wondered, by the way, where the conventions for texting come from, you know, people using all camp. I wonder if it comes from these memos. This is, this is almost, that's what came to mind reading this stuff. They're really exercised by this. They have other complaints. Um, they object that they don't teach anything from Eastern civilizations in the course, <clears throat> which again, this is a, a basic course for, for beginning undergraduates, freshmen and sophomore. Uh, another, in another report, someone complained they didn't teach enough about non-European races in the course. One of them suggested they teach a book about called Blacks in Antiquity by someone named Snowden. I can't remember, I've never heard of it, but um, another major complaint was they didn't give enough coverage to modern ideas, you know, 19th, 20th century ideas. Others complained they lacked expertise in the subject they were teaching and didn't invite faculty, outside faculty, to teach there. <clears throat> uh, in other words, th these are all the complaints of a sort of liberal ideology both in terms of, because liberals, by the way, are big into expertise, you know, specialist expertise. That's a complaint a liberal would make. You know, multiculturalism, uh, more or less moral and, and cultural relativism, all these sorts of things. Um, and again, one of the things that Quinn will point out to this, and other people will obviously point out to this, is that, well, it's just one program. There are plenty of other options in, in the university if you want to have those other points of view. One other complaint, however, by the way, was made from the very beginning, and that is that the IHP represented, quote-unquote, sectarian education. Uh, the complaint was made by a classics professor named Robert Lind, who specifically complained, <coughs> quote, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, complained that Pearson College was, quote, a sectarian or Catholic, Roman Catholic institution in the guise of an integrated humanities program, unquote. And to give you an idea of some of the vitriol that, that this, uh, you know, that the program, well, not the program, they, they, literally these people were criticizing the faith of, of the three professors. This is a letter that Robert Lynn wrote uh, 
uh, excerpt of a, a wrote um, to one of these committees about the program. And he's talking about John Sr. in this excerpt. Let me quote it here. Quote, Since he, Sr., instituted the program in Latin at Pearson, however, he was with singular dogmatism and a specially religious orientation taking the view that we in the Department of Classics are somehow out of date in our teaching. When at a departmental meeting, I asked him, remember, I'm backing out here for a minute, um, Sr. had an appointment in the Department of Classics, so... Uh, I asked him what he was doing with Latin and what he proposed to teach in the two-track program with a second year of Latin. He refused to give me any clear and definite reply, really tossing off the name Bonaventura as a part of the second year readings. That's St. Bonaventure. Now, Bonaventura is a famous Catholic theologian who has never been, except in Catholic seminaries, ever regarded as an author who should replace the classical Latin authors usually taught in second year Latin courses. I therefore mistrust his choice of authors be read, unquote. Um went on to say that the uh, went on to complain that these were quote efforts to indoctrinate students in his own narrow and obscurantist views uh, which, by which he meant quote Catholic doctrine and dogma unquote <clears throat> and by the way it's pretty clear from all that you read some other documents of this stuff uh, in the IHP cash they have at KU that the members of the committee kind of took listened to this they took this seriously um, so from a very early period before any of this stuff, later stuff happens, there's already, there's already suspicion of it. Uh, not much of it, by the way, um, justified, almost none of it justified, actually. <coughs> Excuse me. And so these committees, the CAI, in particular, um, issued a report which they recommended the program continue, but in a severely modified form. Again, I mentioned about four of them wanted to get rid of the whole thing altogether, but others wanted to revamp its curricula. That was the one thing. The second thing was they wanted to get control of that out of the professor's hands and into an oversight committee. Um, and uh, Quinn, as I mentioned before, didn't think any of this lying down. Uh, Quinn and uh, the other professors, but Quinn's the front man. Uh, they fought back really hard. Um, they attacked the very vague nature of the criteria they use for evaluating the program and for soliciting... Uh, you know, uh, soliciting it looked like, and by the way, they accused them of looking for stuff. And I think they were, by the way. I mean, look at the documents. They were clearly trying to find as many negative voices as they could. Uh, I, I, I say this because it was pretty obvious. It was pretty easy to find supportive voices, which Quinn did, which the professors, they found all sorts of outside faculty, visiting profs. You can find some of the stuff, students, parents, who are willing to, like, write rebuttals about, uh, about things like charging indoctrination, Right. Um, but they also had another tack. Uh, Quinn and the professors also objected to the scrutiny of the program as a violation of their academic freedom. Um, they accused them of hypocrisy since, because um, they refer to them as educational pluralists, the idea that you have a, a diversity of views, is what they call them. But, um, you know, since these people were, I call them liberals, that's all I need to call them, but um, these people were touting the idea of, well, you have to expose students to a wide range of views. Well, if that's the case, you should be able to tolerate the views of the IHP. Quinn specifically uh, said, quote, in, a, uh, in one statement he made, quote, that pluralism as an ideology has entered, quote, the inquisitorial stage. And so they fight back about this. And by the way, some of this is, gets close to that. You, by the way, had other professors outside the program who agreed with them. And so you had this report that recommended retconning the program, basically, in 1973. However, it did not take place. Instead, they, people at the university decided against it. They did hold a series of assemblies in that year uh, to take feedback and decide what to do about the program, in which, that the, uh, um, in which uh, eventually they did actually begin to chip away at its independence. 
Uh, that year, an advisory board was set up for the program to make recommendations for it, even though mm, the three profs are still more or less in control. Probably most importantly, however, um, IHP courses uh, were no longer allowed to satisfy college requirements for graduation, meaning before you could take classes in the program and they'd count towards your English degree or your classics degree or to Western Civ, and that was taken away. They were only allowed to be uh, counted as electives. Uh, which probably is the most important thing that happened because that makes the program much less attractive to students, which all of a sudden the, uh, the, uh, the enrollment dropped. But there were still, I think, well over 100 students, 130 or so, um, in the program. So they passed that uh, test there. And for the next few years, they did try to address some of the criticisms in that report. Um, the IHP, the, uh, the professors invited uh, in the wake of all this, prof from outside the program to lecture uh, in the program, 13 of them from 11 different departments to counter these charges of isolation. Uh, and meanwhile, 1974, John Sr. was given a university teaching award, I think it's called the Hope Award, um, for his efforts as a teacher. In fact, by the way, um, his two colleagues, Nellick and Quinn, had been awarded that same award back in the 1960s. So all three of, the, all three of these people are great teachers and everybody recognizes it. Uh, nevertheless, there were still uh, there were still attempts before 1976-77, that year, that school year, to sort of uh, I think uh, I, this is my interpretation. I think there were people poking holes to see what might stick. In 1975, for example, the, the university decided to ditch the whole notion of the college within the college program, college within the college thing. Pearson was abolished. All the other colleges were abolished. And again, the main complaint, and people at IHP were very aware of this, is they didn't have enough control. They didn't like the idea of these individual programs going off reservation, which is a hilarious thing to hear from people who say they're mostly concerned about people doing their own thing. Um, um, but they stayed, in, they stayed in existence. The program went on outside of that under the auspices of the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, it was kind of an ominous development. There was also, in 1976, a complaint issued uh, uh, someone tried to lodge a Title IX complaint against the program. Why? Because it, they claimed that the, um, the program was teaching traditional gender roles in class, which, yeah, of course they, of course they were. Um, but it was quashed by the, uh, by the college because of academic freedom grounds. You couldn't object to that. Um, but what it suggests to me is there are people behind the scenes, and we really don't know. I mentioned some of the names here. We're not really sure who all is involved. We know some of the outside people I'll get to in a moment. Um, but it seems like there were, there were people looking for something that would stick. And unfortunately, they eventually found what they were looking for in 1976. When, in 1976, spring of 1976, the 75-76 school year, uh, basically the, entire, uh, the entirety of the program, 150 students plus the entire teaching staff, you know, profs and graduate students, went on a trip to Galway. Uh, Ireland in 1976, you know, beautiful Ireland's, you know, do stuff there. I don't remember what the exact things they were doing there. But um, a couple of things happened um, on that trip. One is that two students uh, on the trip drowned in the Irish Sea, which is a tragedy and, you know, they reported on, helped bond the students together to a certain degree. However, something else happened, and this, uh, from what I can understand, was not, was not a... Um, it wasn't part of the actual trip, but apparently a bunch of students found out there was a monastery in France, and they wanted to visit this monastery. And they actually got, I believe they had to go get, and they got the approval 
of the uh, of the professors of the IHP. It actually went off to um, to this monastery. And what happens is, this, as I recall, I don't have this in my notes anywhere, but uh, not all at once, but eventually about six of these students actually will enter this monastery at Fontgeneuve in France. Um, and um, this sort of begins, this sets in, uh, sets in motion their demise. Uh, because as early as 1975, um, there had been um, complaints, oral complaints made by parents to the Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Kind of becomes nothing. But now they have an excuse, some of these people, and in particular, the, the parents of some of these, these, these young men who go off and become, and by the way, they did, they did all become monks from, from recollection, um, all six of them, I think. Uh, I've actually met one of these monks, by the way. Um, uh, people who know what I'm talking about. Our Lady of the Annunciation of Clear Creek down in Oklahoma is a, a monastery. It's founded by that, that, that monastery, monks from that monastery of Fontgeneuve. That's some of the KU monks down there. Uh, Father Bethel is the one I'm talking about when I've met. Anyway, um, in 1976, in August of 1976, three sets of parents, um, um, one Jewish, one Protestant, one Catholic, actually, um, make complaints to the ALCU, AC, ACLU, I should say. You know what that is. Uh, and the Jewish Community Relations Bureau, something, I don't know what that is, uh, in Kansas City, uh, about the IHP. And they alleged the profs had influenced their sons to join the monastery. And now, by the way, students would actually ask, uh, they would ask about religion, um, these profs outside of class. They would give them advice, which, by the way, is perfectly within their, there's nothing about that that's illegal or anything like that. They just asked them about religion. They didn't force them or, or suggest they go and join a monastery. Um, but these parents got these organizations to contact the university, and they started holding meetings with them, with, dean, with the dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, other officials, um, trying to put pressure on the university to close the program. And they did this, by the way, because they knew they couldn't file a lawsuit. Uh, the ACLU never even considered it, from what I understand, um, because they, were, because they, they couldn't. Um, what the profs were doing were, was covered by academic freedom and presumably the First Amendment. So instead, they turned to, to, to activism. Um, in May of 1977, these parents and other activists, one of whom, by the way, was a Unitarian minister, um, formed a pressure group called the Committee uh, for Academic and Religious Liberty, CARL, which began a media campaign to get the, the program shuttered. Um, they sent press releases to sympathetic, sympathetic media outlets, uh, religious bodies, Jewish synagogues, um, Methodist churches, apparently, uh, to put pressure um, uh, on the university. And to give you an idea, I want to read something from some of this. Read something from their... Um, well, some of the things they did here. Just one second. Uh, yes, and so you have these uh, this group being formed. Um, they, they actually had a big meeting in 1977. Uh, uh, got a bunch of speakers to you know get attention to the media, uh, and accused the program of brainwashing students. <clears throat> and there were several people involved in this. Um, I mentioned the one, the guy named uh, Vem Burnett, Barnett, that was the, the Unitarian minister. Uh, another guy was a, uh, a guy named John Swamley, uh, who was a professor of social ethics at the St. Paul School of Theology, which is a Methodist school. As you can tell, it kind of, um, you can kind of tell where this is coming from. Uh, at this meeting, um, Barnett had these words to say about the IHP. I'm quoting here. 
quote, even tenured professors like elected presidents can be removed constitutionally by public concern. The public cannot leave murders or other crimes to faculty review. The gross violation of constitutional rights by the IHP program provokes an appropriate public outcry. I mentioned Dean Cobb has welcomed our program and others of the faculty administration have told me that the only way to bring about substantive changes in this program is through public concern. So if you have a concern, I invite you to write your legislatures and regents. Uh, unquote, that's Burnett. Um, Swamley also went on to say that they were violating uh, civil liberties of these students. And this is his quotation here, quote, the University of Can at the University of Kansas, under the pretense of academic freedom, has organized a program which openly violates both the religious liberty and the establishment clauses of the First Amendment. Um, a state university which depends on the taxes drawn from the people of all faiths and those of no professed religion has no right to finance the teaching of sectarian religious doctrine, um, whether that is Christianity or Judaism or Roman Catholicism or Protestantism. And... Um, uh, you know, Quinn, by the way, that's a, that's a quote there. Quinn pointed out if this was actually true, you could easily win in court, which, of course, they didn't bother to do because they had no case. Um, they had to use these sort of um, activist uh, techniques instead. Uh, and this riled up a lot of uh, emotion about this stuff. As you can uh, very well imagine, there was a, a couple of, um, there were a couple of actually pretty fair articles published in the Kansas City Star in 1977. You can still find these, I think, floating around the Internet, I think from their archive um and i have to say one of I, I do feel sorry for some of the parents like one of the parents um one of the things that got if you're wondering why if you've not gotten the sense of what i've said so far a lot of the opposition tended to be by liberal protestants and jews outside opposition i mean literally specifically jewish rabbis were concerned about this liberal protestant denominations <clears throat> and um <coughs> excuse me <coughs> sorry I, um, I mentioned one of the one of the kids who became a monk. Their parents were um, you know, Jewish, and I, I, I do kind of feel sorry for them. You read that article in the Kansas City Star. Uh, some of these kids and people recognize this, and you know the professors did as well. Some of these kids who converted to Catholicism when they went through this program tended to become really aggressive about it. And the one student who was Jewish and became a monk was really kind of kind of a dick toward his parents, to be honest with you. Just from what I read in that, that uh, article, it didn't seem to treat them very well. So you can see why some of this got to be personal. On the other hand, they went through, uh, the rest of this does seem like this is being used as an excuse to get rid of a program, which is in no way unconstitutional, but they don't like. <coughs> Nonetheless, and the IHP did try to fight back against this. Um, they actually formed their own association, a Friends of the Humanities Association, try to gin up support, <clears throat> but did not work, unfortunately. Um, and I, this is my opinion here. I think this is, I suspect, probably because their opponents were more practiced at these types of activities, and probably, probably because they had more friends in the university administration, for reasons I'll get to in a moment. In any event, by 1978, this, all this pressure worked. Um, by, by 1978, uh, enrollment, new enrollment in the IHP had dropped to 27 students. Uh, and the drop was, uh, enrollment was then used by the college, dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences to make further cuts to the IHP budget, which was you know, partially funded by the university. <coughs> and so you began to get more complaints about the, about the program, about its alleged dogmatism, its lack of toleration, 
And the advisory committee, the one that was set up in 1973, issued a report and asked a series of questions uh, they wanted answered about, about, the, um, about the, uh, the program, one of which was, quote, does the program indoctrinate or proselytize? <clears throat> and so a series of public hearings were held on this. Again, Quinn and the other professors you know, issued their own report to this, this, uh, these public hearings, more committees. And then finally, the advisory committee issued its own report in January 1979, which you know, cleared them of pro- the charge of proselytizing, which is kind of silly anyway, but also demanded or asked for major changes to the program, including broadening the curricula to include you know, opponents of the IHP program and a humanities committee to administer it. In other words, they're going to take control away from the professors. And um, when the dean of the college of liberal arts and sciences asked them to turn over their files and sit on a new committee, they refused. And effectively, the program died uh, in 1979. Um, um, The three professors, two of the three professors, went on teaching those courses for a few more years. Uh, Franklin Nellick, actually both Nellick and Senior were in ill health. Franklin Nellick stopped teaching humanities courses before retiring in 1984. Uh, he dies in 1996, if I have it correct here from my notes. Uh, Senior and Quinn continued teaching uh, together, the team teaching the courses like they had before, until Senior suffered a couple of heart attacks in 1980, and he was forced to retire in 1983. I don't have it in my notes, but Quinn went on for more, many more years. Uh, I believe he re- retired sometime in the late 1980s. I could be wrong about that. Um, but the program was gone. Um, they're not forgotten. John Sr. eventually passed away in 1999. And Quinn, uh, I mentioned this earlier, passed away in 2011, uh, I believe a month, uh, March, a couple months before I got my degree. Um, and so um, that was the, the story of the rise and fall of the IHP. A couple of things I want to talk about here to wrap this up. <clears throat> One is to talk about um, the anti-Catholicism angle here. Uh, and again, you've seen, I've talked about some of it here. I've talked about some of my experiences on the campus. You know, how far was anti-Catholicism a motivating factor here? Um, I think it's there. Uh, I think it's there. I think it's in the background, however. Um, I think the sort of coalition that formed against it in the inside the university, you know, liberals in the university, and then kind of liberal Protestants and more liberal Jews outside of it suggest there were broader concerns here than just Catholicism. And part of this is suggested to me because uh, uh, at the time I mentioned those Kansas City Star articles, one of them talked to a priest from the Catholic Campus Center uh, at the time, back in the 70s. And he didn't seem to like uh, the program. And they didn't, by the way, they didn't have anything to do with the the Campus Center back then. I think it because it was kind of on the it was in Vatican II mode, let's put it that way, back in the 70s. Uh, the church needs to modernize and update, and everything's great about this. And, and they mentioned this. Um, Quinn and, and I've seen, I think Senior talked about this, is that they, they recognized that Catholic isn't equatable to medieval Catholicism. They understood. <laughs> They're not stupid. They understood that. They were, they were giving what they thought was the truth about you know, the world, and they taught it a certain way. And I think the big problem here is not necessarily Catholicism, as it not being a liberal form of Catholicism that was the problem. And you can kind of see this it plays out a little bit even in the life of John Sr. I have to mention this here, since we're mentioning Catholicism, and it's about this. You know, um, <clears throat> um, John Sr., uh, at the end of his life, became associated with the uh, Society of St. Pius X. This is the 
community founded by Marcel Lefebvre that's in, you know, sort of irregular, uh, irregular communion is the way I've, I've heard it described with, uh, with the Catholic Church today, you know, centers on, you know, worship and the, the old Roman rite, the Latin mass. And to give you an idea, um, there's actually an interview that just, was just published between uh, his son, John Sr., I think his son's Andrew Sr., uh, and the son of uh, my friend, Peter Kwasniewski, Julian Kwasniewski. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. I don't do Polish names very well. Um, which he describes why he became a member associated with that, that uh, with the SSPX. And it had to do um, when he had his second, I guess his second heart attack. He was in the hospital, thought he was dying. And he asked for a priest. I guess it was one from the campus center, I think. And um, the priest came in there and told him not to worry um, you know, death has nothing to worry about because we don't know what happens after you die. And uh, Senior apparently, like, got really angry and told him to get out, and that was the last time, apparently, he, I guess he had anything to do um, with your, or your ordinary average parish priests. And so, um, and so he is associated with that, um, uh, that aspect. Of it. If you're wondering, by the way, if this whole thing, if you didn't know about this, it sounds kind of traditional, traditionalist a little bit, I don't know that Quinn, I don't think Quinn or Nellick ever got into that. I don't think, I don't know. Uh, I didn't read up on it. But there is that, you know, I know people, by the way, who did go through the program, who did become members of the SSBX. Some got out of it, some didn't. Um, but there's definitely a traditionalist sort of undertow to a lot of this, um, which, you know, I'm basically a traditionalist myself, so I'm, I'm fine with it, but that is something that's there. But I want to talk... Uh, I think the significance of this is a little wider. It is, yeah, it's about anti-Catholicism, but it's about wider things. I'll say one thing. In terms of the university itself, this looks like, to me, a matter of gatekeeping. What do I mean by that? Gatekeeping means um, trying to, to limit access to resources, to prestige, to power by people you don't want to have it. And um, I think... I think everyone, you read through this stuff, you know, reading up this stuff, I mentioned all these people are liberals. I think they didn't want people who were, they thought were quote-unquote illiberal anywhere near, to have any influence, to be honest with you. Um, and again, people, you know, you say this stuff, liberals scoff at it because, well, you don't have any evidence of that. People don't write these things down. <laughs> but you ask anybody who's been on a search committee in private, let them be anonymous. They'll tell you, yeah, they think the person's a practicing Christian. It, it generally dooms their efforts. It does. Um, things like legacy admissions. Like, if you're wondering, one of the reasons, it's one of the many, one of the reasons why universities are so insane these days, why they, why they seem to be going crazier and crazier with their ideas, one of the reasons is, like, you have these people wanting to get into these colleges. They're trying to appeal to the powers that be, who are very, very, very left-leaning liberals. And so to get in there, these uh, these admissions smooth their way in there. They let them know, hey, we're one of we're one of you. We're one of you. We're not one of these people. Um, and uh, of course, <laughs> um, that's what you know. Liberals in places like you know Stanford want to hear. Uh, liberals do gatekeeping. It's how they keep control of institutions. This, by the way, is how every 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 ideology, every belief system in any society, that's how they work. You don't let people into your institutions whose ideas are absolutely antithetical to them into your institutions. It'll destroy the institutions, <laughs> all right? Um, and this is partly, by the way, though, due to, I think, something that's a, a mirage of, of liberal rhetoric. 
liberals have historically portrayed themselves as people who tolerate all beliefs. And you kind of see, you know, Quinn and the rest of the professors saying, hey, you guys you know, claim toleration. And I, and again, at the time, that must have seemed like a good avenue for them. But in retrospect, it was never going to work. Um, mainly because this is mostly propaganda. Um, liberals have never been totally tolerable. Nobody, no, and literally nobody could, for reasons I've already mentioned. Um, but I think people think that. I think liberals think that because, you know, liberalism triumphed over as a political and social entity over Christendom, right? The old arrangements of church and state in the 19th century, all the revolutions of that, that era. And when they did so, they did liberate minorities that had suffered under, you know, Christian rule, Jews most especially. But that doesn't mean that they, they tolerate all minorities. They can't. But they like make you think that they can. It's part of the appeal of liberalism. Hey, we're tolerant of everybody. It's not true. But it goes deeper than that. Because what you're seeing, I think, in this, uh, besides the transformation of, um, besides this, you know, there's, again, some anti-Catholicism there. I think you're seeing a very historically important moment play out in the IHP episode, which is the transformation of liberalism in the 1960s. Remember how uh, I mentioned post-war liberalism was concerned about totalitarianism. This goes back to World War II, right? Um, you know, you thought probably when you grew up that, hey, World War II is about stopping Hitler from taking over the world. No. Uh, that's not what FDR thought. That's not what people running the war thought. They thought it was a war for liberal democracy against illiberal totalitarian forms of government. And what happens, of course, is that this sort of propaganda combined with the Cold War propaganda of the 1950s made people take a lot closer look at American society. And this is why you get in the 1960s the children of these liberals of World War II turning their criticism against the country itself. Oh, you're criticizing the Nazis for, being, for having racialist policies? Well, look what you have here at home in the South. Uh, you're criticizing you know, the totalitarian regimes for committing war crimes? Well, look what you're doing in Vietnam. Uh, all this stuff, all the children of these liberal elite begin to turn their guns, their criticism on the country itself, and in particularly on liberalism itself. What you have happen in the 1960s on campuses you know, uh, and actually, uh, I read somewhere where, where Quinn and some of those professors thought that, well, what's going on in these campuses isn't really a matter of, isn't so much a matter of outside politics, it's about ideas. Now, it is about ideas. It's obviously about ideas. But I think, they're, I think they undersold the political part. Um, because what you're having here is these, pro these protest movements are a revolt of a younger generation against the Cold War liberalism of their parents. Uh, and this is why you get the, the emergence of the so-called new left in the 1960s, who were concerned with racism, with sexism, with all the isms you're now very familiar with for a variety of different reasons. And of course, the stuff we're dealing with today, I'm thinking about present day stuff, you know, wokeness, DEI, all this stuff starts where? It starts in the university campuses. And um, it's literally in 1972 that new left activists literally take over the Democratic Party. At the, at the Democratic Party convention, presidential nominating convention in 1972, that's when the old labor unions, the old Southern Democrats were basically pushed out of leadership positions by these young, urban, gay, women, blacks. That, that coalition came ascendant in 1972, the very year that the first maneuvers were being made against the IHP in that program. And they're partly a victim of this change. Um, I think you can almost see this in some of the people who were critics 
of the program. I mentioned some of these activists outside the program, but again, I'm going to go out on a limb that some of the faculty who were critical of, of the program were probably junior faculty, younger, who were probably more influenced by these movements, uh, but even the older faculty probably being pushed in that direction. And, um, and so you're having this shift to this more aggressive form of, of left liberalism, right? Uh, and again, note, by the way, the continuity here. Remember, the old liberalism wanted to, you know, was dedicated to eradicating ideas like fascism, Eradi dedicated to eradicating illiberal ideas. The, the difference now, of course, is that these, this newer generation identifies illiberal ideas with Western civilization itself. And I think that's what you're seeing here. Um, and I think this is, it's literally, you know, IHP was present at the beginning of wokeness and cancel culture and all that other stuff, in other words. Um, and so it's important for this wider purpose, but it's also important, again, they weren't proselytizing. They did not do that, but um, we have lots of testimonies in that fact, but it did bear fruit. This is the last thing to mention. I kind of, I gave a dramatic title to this episode, you know, the rise and fall of the IHP. IHP. But in really, this is actually a story of triumph. Um, you know, we should, you know, what's the, I guess it's from the book of, was it the book of Sirach or the book of wisdom? A, a, a phrase from the Bible. Let us now praise men of renown. Um, because I, I, we do need to praise. And I, 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 in these, these episodes, I've, I, you know, my, my podcast is more of an academic thing. I tend to be more, you know, distant and, and critical about these things. I can't find too many things to say to criticize about the IHP or the three professors. Uh, some of the students, yeah. The profs, for the most part, I, I think were, they, they sound like extraordinary people. I wish I'd gotten, I wish I had a chance to know them because uh, they deeply affected a lot of people. Uh, nobody knows, by the way, I mentioned the six monks. There were, there were a bunch of people who went to the program who, became, who did convert to Catholicism. Again, they weren't being pressured. They weren't being proselytized. They just, you know, they went through and they found this beautiful thing, this recognition that, yes, we can know truth about the world, became Catholic. Um, nobody knows the number. I mean, I've heard uh, people I've talked to, probably over 100, a bunch became Catholic because of all this. Um, I know, I believe there's at least one bishop, Bishop Conley of uh, Lincoln now, um, uh, who went to that program. Again, he became a priest and a bishop, bunch of vocations, obviously a few monks here and there. Um, the Catholic Center, I mentioned the Catholic Campus Center, wasn't really on board with this in the 1970s. It definitely came on board later on because <laughs> uh, you had students who had gone through it who came through the program and everything. Um, and uh, it has a legacy beyond this. You have people taking this stuff into their own lives. There are people I know personally, a friend of mine, uh, who, who trying to do something like this uh, at a Catholic, a Catholic Campus Center. So you've had, this, you've had this program have this amazing effect on people, which is what education is, of course, supposed to do. And so, you know, it's, it's not as if this was a, t this was not really, it was not a, a, a um, uh, the closing of the program was not necessarily the end of things. I have to say as well, I, I'll find a couple of things to try to criticize. Another. The other thing about their, their approach to education, I think is actually cutting edge, really. And I know Senior uh, read somewhere that he basically said, we weren't trying to do anything different or new. I, think they, I don't know if it was different or new, but they did actually, I think, anticipate some real, well, I'll give you the, the thing I have in my brain, this idea that you know, education needs to be you know, holistic. Um, um, their ideas remind me a little bit of a, um, a book, of a person whose ideas are kind of controversial, but I'm reading through one of his books right now. 
uh, a guy named Ian McGilchrist, um, who's a um, long story, he's actually a neuroscientist and a literature scholar. Mm, two odd things. He has a really big, again, controversial theory about Western civilization. And uh, it has to do with the, the, the shape of the brain, if you can imagine. But um, he thinks it's the sort of narrow focus on specialization and uh, that leads to cultural fragmentation is actually has roots in our brain. It's kind of interesting. It reminds me of that a lot. I think Mil- Mil- I don't know if McGilchrist ever heard of the IHP. I think he'd like it. Um, but I think they're they're not just what they taught, which is of course awesome. <laughs> uh, you're teaching Dante and Shakespeare and all this stuff, but the way they taught it was really really important. I do think it's not just a matter of education, but Western society as a whole, and this is actually McGilchrist's critique, has become too narrowly focused. You narrowly focused on you know, basically fragmenting the world into little bits and pieces, a la Descartes, and you need to see the world in wider perspective. I think this is actually a magnificent thing they did. Um, you know, I can't, again, if, I, if there's any sort of criticism I can make of the program, I think is to, to make it work to its highest level, you're probably too dependent on having extraordinary people, <laughs> like the three triumvirs of the program, the three great men, uh, Senior, uh, Nellick, and Quinn, I, and, and people will admit, by the way, it could be a little bit cult-like, some of the, some of the following of the IHB. Um, but I think there's so many wonderful things about it. These really are, I have to really reach for criticisms. I think they just got, I'll say the other, they got totally screwed, obviously. The thing was stupid. Uh, and a loss to the university. And um, I should mention, by the way, they're not alone in this. I had a, uh, a colleague, a uh, teacher, I saw him as a colleague later on, mine at KU, a history professor, um, who uh, he was definitely not in the IHP realm. He's more on the postmodern end of things. But he was someone who also may had some of the same complaints about the specialization, wanted to treat bigger cre- questions about you know life and not just narrow specializa- specialized things in the history department, but also was a great teacher. Um, he actually taught um, in the, the honors program for a long time, but he didn't do a lot of research. After he published his first book, he basically just didn't do a whole lot of, of publishing after that. And they eventually took away his, 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 uh, his um, apparently his, um, whatever, his appointment in the honors program. It's the thing about the modern academy. They, they almost have a disdain for teaching. Um, it's amazing. And so, um, no, the, the IHP program was spot on in its criticisms of the modern university and the things that it taught. And I'll go say, again, they weren't sectarian, but they, you know, yeah, I think it should lead you toward Catholicism, but that... That natural human wisdom, that perennial philosophy, is is, is um, I think crucial for its uh, for its healing. And so, uh, not to end this on a a sad note or anything, I think the way to think of the IHP is uh, I'll end with the with the um, with the words of the the Gospel of John uh, about its influence, its great legacy, which spread so many places. Um, John. 12, chapter 12, uh, verses 24 and 25, our epitaph for the Integrated Humanities Program. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And that is it for this episode of Controversies in Church History. Remember, you can find us on the web at churchcontroversies.com. Um, you can also find my writings in Crisis Magazine and uh, 1 Peter 5. I'm working on a new article for 1 Peter 5. Hopefully it'll be done soon. Um, I just published one a couple, week or two ago in Crisis. I have more stuff on the way there. 
I'm also, um, I'll ask for your prayers. I actually been, I, I haven't mentioned this. I actually finished a novel. I've been searching for a publisher. Please keep that in your prayers as well. Uh, and um, also, I, I have a, a book proposal out for a nonfiction book. My editor, uh, Eric Sammons, kindly agreed to shop that for me. Please say a prayer for that success. And, um, and uh, you can find us on social media and everything else. Um, look for new content coming um, in the coming weeks, some, some new stuff. Eventually, next episode of the, um, the series on Latinization and as well on the uh, some new stuff, some um, some retcon stuff, some some stuff on film again. We'll go back to that. Um, but that's what's upcoming, upcoming on the podcast. And um, again, please, again, if you would uh, say a prayer for my for my beloved mother. Uh, and um, you'll hear from me soon. Take care, everyone, and God bless. <laughs>